Hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes. We're a group of two ex-lab scientists who now work in different fields and talk about plants still. Yeah, I'm Joram and with me is Tegan. Hi. Yeah. Hi, I'm Tegan. And um, yeah, every week we talk about molecular plant science and other plant science and other science and other non-science. So pretty much everything. We talk. It's kind of like <laughs> what we like to do. We talk. And I mean, especially now in COVID times, I'm talking to you, my housemate, my cat and my plants. So like yeah. <laughs> talking to you is a pretty big highlight of my week. Like, <laughs> I'm not getting out that much. S same. I have also very few social interactions apart from <laughs> like my immediate family. So yeah. It's I good. mean, actually like my social interactions has probably gone up since COVID as far as like I'm messaging and I am like, like video chatting with some people more than like COVID has encouraged reaching out to people surely, like yeah. messaging them and sending photos and checking in on people. I thought about doing like a very like closed access podcast or something for just like friends and family where I sort of chat about what you've been doing and then they can listen to it when they want. It's sort of like an extended voice message instead of just having like one minute that you can like listen in your chat thing. And I'm doing that like for, for one friend that I have. I'm I'm doing like a very personalized podcast that has just like one single listener and that's him. Um, mm -hmm. It's also not like... I mean, you can technically subscribe to it, um, but it's not on in any of the catalogs. So it's a really weird approach to this technology of broadcasting to many people by just tuning it to one single person. But it's sort of fun. And it's sort of an interesting thing to think about, like, new ways to s sort of stay in contact. You, um, we get so many things you, you talk about at, like, the coffee machine or something at, at work or uh, when you sort of hang out together. So if you set up a call you might not talk about the same things um that randomly cross your mind um mm. and by doing like some some weird thing like that like a single person or a very small group podcast or whatever or video that you record or, um you can have like these weird moments in between that are i don't know much more personal sometimes than like a setup phone call that you do I think I have that with one of my very close friends. We we send voice messages quite often and quite long voice messages, usually from her, I must say. Um, and we also do this thing where we like just send each other photos of our face or like, yeah, actually quite often our faces. Like in the morning, she's in Berlin, so she's one hour ahead of me. So she'll send me her face while she's on the train wearing her mask. And then like I'm in like bed still and I'm showing her my face waking up. And it's just like... It's like this weird, bizarre, like somebody is acknowledging my existence, but I don't have to be pretty for this person. Like this is like yeah. somebody I show my like waking up face to. And it's like, yeah, that's that's quite nice. Usually when I mean, when you're single, usually when you go, when you show somebody your face, you've prepared to meet the world. You've like dressed in some way and gone outside. And this is like some sort of um, intimacy with this person of just like, here I am. Like, yeah, yeah which I, I quite enjoy. Yeah, there's there's like lots of like small cultural techniques that we we have to discover and figure out right now um, to sort of keep our social side intact, our the, the our need to be socially active to to have that met um, while not actually physically meeting. So yeah, mm. I think yeah, this was actually one of the arguments. I was just at a conference for my work about um, nature-based solutions. This is kind of using the resources that we already have in nature and, and sort of restoring them and, and you, you know, um, restoring degraded forests, for example, or like um, having better agricultural practices, kind of using what we have in, in nature to combat, like, firstly, climate, so problems with um, 
greenhouse gases, carbon, um, but also like biodiversity issues that we're having. And they were talking about obviously COVID because this is the context we're in right now. And they're saying that the current COVID crisis has basically two things that we're missing. And one is that we're missing our friends and family. And the second is that we're missing or we have this desire to be out in the world. And we were kind of appreciating more our contact with nature and we're placing value on our contact with nature, which we weren't doing before. Like there's this kind of realization of how much we need to be Mm. like out there in the park or in the forest or at the beach or something like this. We pretty much all got the negative control right now of not having these things and suddenly realize like how valuable all of these things are. Unfortunately, everybody has the full understanding of, um, of how, how much it's worth to protect these things, but many people do. Um, I mean, I definitely, <laughs> COVID has also taught me that I can, I have so many ridiculous hobbies that I don't have time to do that I can quite happily be in my, I could be in my room for, you know, nine months. And as long as I had, I think I need some nature, although there's a lot of plants in my room, it's quite foresty in here, but I could be inside for a long time and, and still have more things to do as far as like not getting bored mentally and like artistically, but Yeah. yeah. I like to go for some fresh air as well. This is true. Yeah, yeah, and, and and social interactions. I think is the one is the stuff that's that's hard in that setup. But I I could be the same. Like as long as I can get stuff delivered, like like supplies delivered, um, <laughs> I wouldn't mind staying inside. Um, yeah. And then like crafting and making and cooking and baking and being creative uh, online and stuff. Um, yeah, there's I so also much to learn as well. I was just like looking at um, online courses that are coming up because the, the semester is going to start in September, I think. And I was like, should I start doing a master's of science communication? Should I start doing? It? I, was like, uh, I don't know. I don't think I have enough time right now, but there are so many options out there. Yeah, there's so much left to learn. Guys, I hope you know a very important thing happened on the weekend. No, on Friday last week actually. Um, Hamilton dropped. <laughs> the stage version of Hamilton came out as a recording that was available on Disney Plus. Oh, so okay. I, yeah, um, I bought Disney Plus subscription for one month just so. I mean, I think it's only seven seven pounds or something like that. And this is then I watched a three hour Hamilton musical with Lin Manuel and the original stage cast um, with some American friends um, and also a Chilean friend who. What, one and a half years ago, I went to London. Well, I came to London with them to watch Hamilton for my birthday as like a special treat. And now I got to like meet with the same people via Zoom and watch Hamilton. And it was a really great experience. It was really, really lovely. Oh, great. Um, yeah. And tears were had. Um, yeah. It's something that went completely past me. Though. Like, I know so many people who absolutely adore Hamilton. So good. And I had, like, apart from sort of secondary contact, I had zero contact with it. I mean, it's it's not it's it's not here in Germany, um, so you would have to travel to places to to watch it, or I could watch it now on Disney Plus. Um, mm-hmm. And and you should no, you should listen to the music first. And the other thing is, like, I have very little knowledge about like the whole American independence, or I don't even know what it is like the founding father story, right? Like, it's them. I mean, I have I have little knowledge and no interest in this this history, honestly. Like, I mean, seriously, I, I just was not coming at it at all from that angle. It was from a I am interested in musicals angle, and I need to listen to something, and that was the. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's really good, and it's. 
if you don't like musicals, it's got a lot of different varieties of song. It's not everything kind of sang in operatic like love songs. It's it's a mix. Um, Isn't it hip hop? I heard that's like the. There's some more rappy elements there as well. So some songs are more rappy. Some like there's one song which I think basically sounds to me like a JT song, and it could be on the radio now. So it's called "Wait for It" for those of you who know it. And I think this song is like completely modern poppy accessible um I and then others th are more like ballads and like sad and yeah the whole thing is on, on on spotify so maybe i'll um tomorrow or later tonight or whatever i'll have a listen and see because like i, I technically like musical music um mm. but not all of them sort of the edgier ones but i i do enjoy those um just the stage productions never attracted me like as Like I'd, I'd rather just listen to the music um, than see it on stage, but uh, that—that's maybe why I feel so weird about musicals. Um, yeah. Okay, so if you want to listen to something to start with, I reckon you can listen to the Skylar Sisters, or Satisfied, or Burn. Like these are the the three I would start with. Can't I just Which start from the beginning and listen to the whole oh, thing? Oh, you can if you also want to. I mean, I, I'm choosing the like because. It's a musical. A lot of them are very storytelling. So then you should follow it the whole way through. Um, but if you just want to like listen to one to sort of hear a song to start with, I mean, mm. yeah, I mean maybe my shot. I don't know. There's, there's lots of great songs in there, but this is <laughs> this is this would be my entry point. Um, yeah. Cool. Huh. It's fun to have something to emotionally invest in. <laughs> Okay, the other thing that we both did on the weekend was we recorded an episode of our other podcast. We're cheating on this podcast with our friend <laughs> Ellen Earhart, who is a science journalist um, from the US. And she started this plant book club where we every month we read a book that's somehow related to the theme of plants. And then we come and, I mean, basically complain about the book is what I would say. Um, no, we discussed the book and the pros and cons. It, it comes down to the books that we chose. Um, I have a feeling that the next episode will be so much less complaining, at least from my end. Um, <laughs> have and you so already I, read it? I have the I have the feeling that it's not just us being happy to be negative. Um, I think to some extent <laughs> the books deserved so, it. <laughs> so far, we read Emily Dickinson's Gardening Life, which is about the poet Emily Dickinson, but it's got a stronger focus on her garden than her life story. And that was like a really visually beautiful um, book, but it didn't have much of a narrative. Um, it was more focused on like the different plants themselves. Yeah. After that, we read um, Fruit from the Sand, which is about the movement of our major crops and some fruits and vegetables as well across the Silk Road in China and basically how we moved and domesticated different major foods. And that one was very, very scientific, technical. And again, there wasn't a lot of like first person story um, and it was quite dry in places. Um, and then the third one we read now is, what's it called? The, the Extraordinary... The Revolutionary Genius of Plants about the Hidden Intelligence of Plants from St Stefano Mancuso, um, mm -hmm. who's a big proponent of neurobotany, the idea that plants have an inherent intelligence that we're just not able to like measure or see or interact with as of now. And he's mm -hmm. a big proponent of the idea that there's a lot of intelligence that we can't see right now. And I think it's a fascinating concept. I think it's something that's very controversial. You don't see it very often. There's very few researchers actually working in that direction. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of, of plants being intelligent, having a consciousness or making decisions in, in their daily life. 
So I was very excited to learn more about this, unfortunately, and uh, you can hear all the details of my opinion in the podcast, um, <laughs> but unfortunately, the book falls a, uh, rather short in terms of actually going in, into this idea. It's, a, it's about a so whole I lot of like other things instead. Well, none of us really, none of us knew about Stefano Mancuso before we read the book. Um, I think I suggested the book, but I'm not even sure how I found it. I guess somebody on Instagram was reading it or I saw it like on via something. Um, but I didn't know about who this person was and what their background is. And like in the opening of the other podcast, Yoram sort of says, oh, so you, you might have heard about Stefano Mancuso. So he's, he's quite um, controversial in the plant field. And I think I said something like, I didn't know it before I read the book, but three pages in, I was already <laughs> pretty sure this guy's going to be controversial. Um, yeah. yeah. And as Yoram says, like, there's some stuff there which I think is really valuable. Like, he's very enthusiastic about plants and he talks about, like, some really, ex like, like, there were so many things where I was like, I want to read more about that species because that's a really interesting species he's talked about. Well, that's, like, an interesting concept. I want to, like, read into it. But there's also a lot of things where he states an opinion as if it's a fact without backing it up with references or good science. And that's really disappointing. So that's something where... Or even good yeah. reasoning. Um, there's one thing well, the, that, that yeah. uh, annoyed me uh, quite a lot. Um, and that's a, uh, an extra thing right now on this podcast because I didn't mention it on the other podcast um, because <laughs> I talked too much there anyway. Um, there, <laughs> then at one, like he very, he presents numbers very sparsely, but once he presents mm. numbers and he gives them without any sort of control or frame of reference, he just says, like he integrates how much more I think glyphosate was used in the US between 1970 and the year 2000 oh, yeah. or something. Um, and there's no frame of reference. There's no indication is like is total pesticide use going up how much more land are they using how much yeah, more product per do person, they make per crop per, yeah anything it's just like yeah there they use i don't know 500 tons and then they use like 5,000 tons there's very simplified numbers there but um huh. and that's it and this is the level of reasoning you find in this book and that i found well, it quite his, upsetting his, his reasoning was falling into two categories and one of them seemed to be because somebody said it a long time ago, and this is a very wise person, for example, Leonardo da Vinci, um, even though not necessarily a wise scientific person, sometimes it was like, um, who was it? There was like good... Um, Lamarck. Lamarck, I mean, technically scientific, but there was other people as well. Um, and the second like reasoning was often kind of leveraging his own, like the fact that he's a scientist, which I, I find quite upsetting. This this was something I don't agree with. So if you say, okay, this is this old person thought this, okay, that's interesting. But if it's kind of like, well, I present this and I'm also telling you it's the most important thing, that's, that's dangerous because he is a scientist and he is like a professor and he does have a certain amount of credibility um, based on his, his resume. And this is something where it's like, this doesn't... There shouldn't be. They shouldn't. I saw an article about this recently. That they shouldn't be heroes in science. Um, the the the, the scientists should never be the key. What what should stand up is the scientific work. Not like the scientists should be there to communicate to do and to communicate the scientific work and and sort of saying I believe so. You still should say I believe so and here's why and here's my reasoning and here are the references. Um, yeah. So I think Yoram gave it the the harshest yeah. um, one star, and I gave it four ruptured chloroplasts. So my thing is isolated chloroplasts, and 
Okay, any of you who are nerdy enough to know how chloroplasts um, <laughs> isolation is, you try and isolate them. You often get, you want to get the whole ones and most of the time I you end up with them all kaput. Ones. I just needed um, the crude <laughs> membranes. Oh no, because then it means like, so for me, that means that like, the the it's really promising and then the value is gone yeah. because like you look and you're like it's so green but then you're like ah these are all broken yeah. um and that's how I found it like there was some really exciting bits and it was fun to read but then like there's this dangerous thing behind it where you can't just tell people I'm a scientist trust me because that is not only problematic for this field of study it's undermining what the purpose of science is like that's that yeah. becomes then dangerous and that's like yeah. we can have these arguments in the context of Greenpeace as well or like any other people who leverage their um their position as like pretty much whenever you leave scientific ground for your reasoning um you undermine your own position because then if you're leaving scientific ground for that aspect, how can I trust you with other things where you might actually present scientific arguments? But how can I trust you because you left the field of scientific reasoning before? Um, mm. and, yeah. and that was something which I really liked having Ellen on the podcast because she's got a different expertise from us. And she was talking about how she's had this experience with other popular science books where she's read like the whole book and she's familiar with a few of the chapters because she's done some research on them and she says she would realize in those few chapters that some of the ways the authors were presenting things was either oversimplified to be the, the, to the point of being a little bit wrong or like not very well justified it was kind of more of an opinion again what we saw here opinion not like supported evidented fact um and then there's other parts where she she didn't know that area so well she's like oh that's really interesting and then she's like hang on a minute the interesting parts when I did know them, I realized that they were interesting but wrong. How can I trust yeah. the remaining? That's kind of, yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah, but interesting. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, this brings us on to today's paper, Yaron. What did you choose? <laughs> this paper, this, this week's paper. Shall we play the jingle? This yeah. Week. It's the paper of the week. And this week I chose the paper and it was actually in the preparation for our Plant Book Club um, recording that I looked up some of the... Actually, it was sort of a, um, a lucky coincidence. I was looking up uh, papers for, for us and then I found on eLife this paper and then I kept it sort of until we recorded the Plant Book Club and now I think it's a good opportunity to talk about it here as well because it talks about the idea of plant intelligence. Um, okay. It's from Casey Markel, um, one single author, which I want to stress here. It's a, it's a very nice study um, performed and written up by a single author who's a grad student. Um, Lack of evidence for associative learning in pea plants, uh, published in eLife. Um, and yeah, it's about the concept of uh, or the question can pea plants learn through associative learning and we we'll talk about what that is in a minute but i think first we should talk a little bit about like what is actually learning and i think it's also interesting in the context of the book that we talked about in the plant book club the revolutionary genius of plants um, because they're the author very often called um, adaptation sort of willful learning or reaction yeah. Um, so there's, there's this weird thing when we, I mean, it's, it's a semantics problem as much as anything when we have definitions. Um, especially, I, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm being a little bit like 
too Anglo-centric here, but I think with the English language, a lot of the words we have, they not only have a meaning, but they also have connotations attached to the meaning, um, which gives them a certain richness, but then becomes problematic when you try to use that same word and redefine it in certain ways. So there's there's problems when you move from the, the animal world to the plant world, because, and even from the human world to the animal world, because you want to use words that have equivalency to communicate the similarities, but sometimes that can be seen by others to be problematic or misleading. Um, because so one obvious example is the idea of memory. So humans do have memory. That's that's clear. Um, animals probably have memory as well, especially things like corvids. So like the crows, they can remember faces and do evil things with that memory. Um, but then like, do plants have memory? And no, they don't have the same sort of memory as as humans. But can you use that same term in the context of plants becomes then like controversial because, yeah, of course, plants don't have a brain. They don't have that kind of gray matter that keeps things yeah. like memorized. But what would the equivalent be? And can I use the same word and say, call it plant memory and redefine it? And then that becomes a big argument about what's what's OK and what's not. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm personally kind of less I'm OK with redefining stuff as long as you make it really clear how you're defining stuff. Um, but others are less okay, which is a big thing. But this then, the issue here becomes something which I think is quite, even without the language issue, there's quite a difference here, right? So we've got the difference between learning and adaptation. Yeah, and to me, um, or not only to me, but uh, to me, the, the idea behind adaptation is that's the process during, d during evolution. So over many, many generations, over hundreds and thousands of years, um, an organism adapts to its environment and is able to um, react to the environment when it gets hot and then the individual is able to react to that but it doesn't do that consciously or intelligently it does it does that through evolution um, like okay. in humans that would be it, if it gets, gets hot I start to sweat um, it's not uh, an intelligent willful um, decision that I make it's not something that I learned that it's good to sweat when it gets hot it's a body response that I do and in plants we have the same thing um, and so even complex things um, something that's very often brought up in the, in, in the context of plant intelligence are the, the things that we can observe much better like carnivorous plants that, that close their traps very quickly so that we can see it uh, it looks as if the plant is sort of watching for an insect to land there and then they close it and they sort of do this willful thing but in as far as we know today, this is all sort of a pre-programmed setup. Like an insect comes in there, it's a trigger, and then due to the adaptation over a long time, the plant is able to close it. It's not something it has to learn. It's not something that it intelligently does. It's just something that happens because it adapted to have the trap and the trap is sprung when an animal is in there. So then the alternative of that adaptation, the learning, would be if when the plant first developed or was born as an animal is, it didn't know to close its trap until it was taught that by another, like a mother plant or a father plant. This is kind of the equivalent, right? Yeah. So it has to see somebody else or somehow be taught by somebody else how to do it, which is, which is not the case with that snapping. That snapping, it does it because chemicals tell it to do it. Um, and this is encoded in its DNA, basically. Yeah. 
And uh, the other thing is then the, the learning, which usually happens during an individual's lifetime. Um, we know that in, yeah, in humans uh, mostly, but also in many animals, uh, for example, in dogs, there's this classic, classic experiment in uh, the Pavlovian, Pavlovian, Pavlov's dog experiment, uh-huh. um, where two inputs um, are combined and the dog is trained with them and later uh, so a positive input and a neutral input uh, are combined and later the dog associates the neutral input with the positive um, input and uh, starts to salivate in that context it's like the bell and the food are presented at the same time and later only the bell is enough to make the dog salivate um, and this is and learning. important and this is an associative learning and important here is that if you just had the bell um, that would not make the dog salivate, and unless you train the the dog to teach him that bell also means food, this is what then teaches him that bell can yeah. stimulate. That's the association part of the associated learning. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's also called um, classical conditioning. So, yeah, this people wanted to know if this was possible in plants, and so far we don't really have any evidence. Until 2016, a study came out in Nature, um, Galliano et al., which supported the idea that in fact yes there is associative learning or um classical conditioning in plants yeah what they did is that they set up an experiment similar to the experiment with the dog where you 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 need a couple of things you need um, a positive uh, input, a neutral input, and you need a readout. Um, for the dogs, was the, the positive input was food, the neutral input was the bell, and the, uh, the readout, the thing you could observe, was the salivation of the dog. Um, mm-hmm. And for plants, uh, they chose, uh, in this case, they chose pea plants, that the positive trigger was light, because plants love light. They grow towards the light. They need it to survive. So that's the mm. equivalent of the dog food. And they needed a neutral trigger. Um, and in this case, this was wind because plants are usually unaffected by wind in most cases. There's like some edge cases, but especially these young pea plants, they did not care for wind. And they did some experiments where they uh, checked that the plants, in fact, did not react to the wind um, when they are when they, yeah, in their sort of native state. And finally, uh-huh. the readout that they used uh, was, was a maze where the plant could grow into one of the two arms of a Y-shaped maze, um, and there was a readout. And so it could grow into one end or into the other end. Uh-huh. So, yeah, you're imagining a Y, and the, the pea plant is at the bottom of the Y, so at the, the bottom of the stem. And then the two forks um, lead to kind of two closed off areas and they can either be shining a light or having a light in a fan. Um, And then in the experiment, the light gets removed and there's only the fan and you see, does the plant still go towards the the fan once the light's not there? So has it been conditioned to know that the light and the fan together um, exist together um, so that when the light is removed, it still responds to the neutral stimuli or the fan. And it's a bit more complicated. There was a few more things that the authors originally did, but that's the basic idea. So first train with fan and light, then remove the positive um, stimuli, which is a light, and see if the plant has learned to associate in associative learning the fan with light and therefore will grow towards just a fan. And um, this is, in fact, what they observed in the initial study, that they could see that when the plants were trained three times per day for three days with this setup, um, that they then associated the the light source with wind and um, they would grow towards the fan when the lights were removed. Um, And the conclusion from that study was that this is the first um, 
experimental proof that plants are able to learn. They can do what dogs do um, in classical conditioning. They associate a neutral trigger with a positive trigger. And it was a pretty big deal because before that there were a lot of like hypotheses and um, people trying to explore that but ultimately all of them failed and there was no evidence in favor of this idea and this one was like a like a, a solid study that provided evidence uh, in in support of associative learning in plants mm -hmm. and i think in the original test the numbers were something like um, after they had been conditioned, 60% of the plants, a little bit more than 60% of the plants, knew to go towards the fan. So they chose the fan, whereas 40% of them um, kind of went the other way. So there was like a 60-40 split, which meant that there was this um, kind of 10% more than expected. And I'm simplifying here, but there's like this tendency towards a learning as opposed to a random 50-50 split. Yeah. Um, and this excited many people, and I imagine that uh, this was also exciting for Casey Markel, um, the author of the study that we're talking about today, because he set out um, to replicate the study, which is a very important process in science, which I see very rarely um, in published papers that um, the, the sort of the results of the replication of a study. Um, and so Casey Markle, um, for his grads, uh, as a grad student, set out to keep as close as possible to the original experiment and see if he can observe the same thing in a different lab with different pea plants. Um, he went through a couple of changes, um, uh, or I would rather call them improvements to the experiment. He, first of all, increased the number of plants that he tested, which is always good when you want to do statistical analysis. If you have like a larger number uh -huh. of indivi individuals that you can observe, um, it's more likely that if you, you actually see, if you see something, that it's actually true. Um, and uh, the other thing that he did is that he moved the lights on the forks of this Y during the training process. So if you imagine the plant is sitting there in the initial study, I'm simplifying here, but essentially the light would come from the left side and the fan would come from the left side the entire time during the training. And then later during the experiment, the sort of the plants that learned, they also went into the left fork. Um, in the replication study, during the training, he swapped um, sort of randomly the position of the light and the fan. So it would sometimes come during a training period from the left, sometimes from the right side. And then later, he would also have then the fan um, blowing on one of these arms. And this would indicate if they really learned to associate these two, um, they would also be able to follow this moving of the lights. And... I was looking in the original study and this they did do something like this in the original study, at least in the pilot version. So there was some switching of the lights. I just don't think as as well as what was done here. So yeah, okay. they were like switching um, between the training and the, the glow because they also had this idea that the plant would just grow to where it last saw the light. So it's problematic to keep the light always in the same position. So they were switching the fan to the other side of the thing. So there was some switching in the original experiment. I don't think we can oversimplify there, but yeah. Yeah, but I think he increased the the impact of the switching um, because this, mm -hmm. this moving the lights was an important part in his study. And finally, he um, did a single blind analysis of the results. So he performed the experiment, but when it came to uh, actually analyzing where the plants would grow in the arm, to make the decision, did it go into the left or the right arm? Um, because as you imagine, it won't stick like 10 centimeters in an arm. Um, the cutoff was actually five millimeters of growth in either direction. 
Um, uh-huh. So it's something where if you have um, a tendency, if you ha- if you have an outcome that you wish to see, as a uh, as an experimenter, you might score them in favor of your um, preferred outcome. And so he asked somebody else to do the scoring. So he. I was just wondering who was doing the scoring because. Um it's a single author study and I was like that's weird because I know at least there's one other person involved in doing experimental work because somebody else scored the growth of the plant um, and it's an acknowledgement um, and the person has the same last name as him so it might be a partner um, yeah. or a sister or a, a parent or something yeah mm. yeah um, which you could you could make the case maybe that can also introduce some bias but um, no, I mean, hopefully I think what was also much less biased than doing it them himself or themselves. No, I think what was also important is that um, he wasn't in the room yeah. when they scored. So he actually just like left. And I think that's important because you can definitely read off the person what the expectations are. So that that seems pretty cool. And the, the plants were moved away from where they were grown, like put on a table. They shuffled the order of them um, and they like linked the like a, a number of the plant, which the, the person did. So they, they made it very like without as, as random as it could be i think yeah. that was or, or he made it like this that was my yeah. my feeling and uh, i think it was an important part of the this replication study as well and the outcome was that uh, he could not rep- reproduce the effects he could not see a significant effect of the plants choosing any arm they would choose the uh, the folks of this maze at random um mm. going against the idea that they um that they have associative learning. They did not care for the fan throughout the entire experiment. Um, and if I understood correctly, there was like one trend he could observe or like something um, that, like a small sh- um, imbalance of the distribution of his observations went uh, towards the last known position of light. So the plants, when they w- the last time they saw the light from the left, then they would have a higher tendency to grow to the left in the maze. Um, yeah, and they saw that also in the controls. Um, actually, in the original study, they saw, saw that saw that when the fans weren't involved, the plant would just always go towards the last, like 100% of the plants went towards the last light source. And here it was not so much. It was like 60% or something kind of yeah. um, went towards the last light. Yeah. But yeah. So, yeah, this doesn't prove that there isn't any associative learning but it does suggest that there might be some problems with the previous um, study that does support associative learning. So it's not proving the opposite, but we're back to square one as far as like there is no proof for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's really hard to prove the absence of something. I mean, it's a, yeah. <laughs> it's an ancient scientific issue that we can't easily prove the absence of a process Um and that's this the same case here. So you, it's it's really hard to, yeah, come up with an experiment where you can say in the end, no, plants are unable to learn. You can also say only say under these conditions, plants don't learn, uh, or at least yeah. plants don't learn in a way that we can observe it. Um, you can, and that's because I mean, there's just so many different experimental conditions you can have. So yeah, as Yoram said, it can always be argued. Well, under these conditions, this happened, um, or it didn't happen. But you've just done the experiment wrong. You have to. I mean, if you get a human baby, um, and you do anything with it, you can say, ah, human baby, like humans don't talk. Like look at it; it's not saying anything. Humans don't talk, but you've got the wrong developmental stage there. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, or I don't know. You could get like a. a 
I don't know, a very, very old woman and you can say, look, humans don't menstruate, but it's like, well, you've again chose the wrong stage or I don't know. Lots of arguments for it. For it. Yeah. Yeah. But overall, um, I think it's, um, I like the study in particular because um, I like replication studies. I think it's an important part of science. Um, I, I, try, I, I recently read a, a quote. Yeah, I think um, it was like in, in modeling science, nobody believes your model apart from the person who made the model. And in experimental science, everybody believes the experiment apart from the experimenter. And um, it's sort of this, I myself, when I perform an experiment, I would be very happy to know that somebody else replicates the experiment somewhere else because doing an, performing an experiment shows you all of the weak points of an experiment and you just hope mm. that in your hands and with all the controls you did, you did well. But having somebody else replicate the study independently and maybe f hopefully finding the same thing is, to me, such a major relief in terms of like trust in my own ability. So that's one thing, but also in, in a, as a bigger picture for science, I think it's very important to um, yeah, to replicate, to, to not have a single point of data pointing in a certain direction, but have, have that replicated a couple of times. Yeah, so what I, what I would say about this is I think it's it's quite uncommon for people to do replication experiments of this kind where they're basically trying to show the same thing in the same species with the same conditions. Um, and yeah, there could be more replication in science, but I think that you could, I mean, you could take a really hard stance and say there's a really big problem with science. There's no replication. This is disgusting and horrible and science all sucks. But I would say that even though there's not a lot of replication, science is very iterative And it's repetitive in other ways. So firstly, I mean, obviously within the experiment, the person should be doing repeats and replicas and these kind of controls. That's like the first level. Of course, then it should be reproduced individually. Um, and that doesn't often happen. But what often happens is that a different research group takes that idea and then does the next thing. So uses that research and builds on it. And in building on the research, they do repeat certain parts of the original research or they use knowledge gained from that and you know, if that knowledge wasn't supported, it would give a different result. So they're kind of fitting together pieces of the puzzle. And if the first piece was like wrong or broken, it wouldn't fit into the puzzle that's being built. And, and if the puzzle doesn't add up, people then go back and sort of say, well, what what did we have wrong? That yeah. So this is the nature of science. And then also it's quite common, um, especially in plants, I would say that things are done in Arabidopsis, so the model plant, but then somebody else would do it in, um, you know, wheat or, or tobacco, like another plant. And then... Again, even though it's a different species, there should be some overlapping similarities, which gives this kind of logical, um, yeah, again, it's not replication, but it, it's kind of overlap, which, which yeah. gives, again, support. So there are some, yes, we should be replicating more, but there, it doesn't mean we should throw away the whole scientific pro process. And there are some things that we're doing, even without di direct replication studies like this, which yeah. I think do help move science. Again, iterative is like this kind of, circle moving upwards that is, is quite good yeah we definitely have indirect replication um you could argue that not not all enough of this is uh published not all enough not, not mm -hmm. enough of this is published um especially when you can't replicate something if you like i've seen things like you order a mutant from a lab that they published um you run them through your analysis and you don't see the same thing but you can't mm -hmm. really tell anyone you can ask them again to maybe get get you a different like copy of the mutant or um, you can write in your notebook that, oh yeah, this didn't work. Um, and sometimes you can put it in sort of a sentence of your paper that you might eventually publish um, about an adjacent thing. 
Um, but in, but if you just make the observation, you get a mutant, they say, I don't know, it it grows 10 meters tall and you put it in your greenhouse and it doesn't. Um, there's very... Right now, there's not a good method that we have to publish these sort of negative results. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't. I also don't have a good idea how to fix that. Like it's it's a hard thing to do because of many things in the research system that I don't want to go, go into right now. Um, but a study like the one today is um, is sort of a negative result, very nicely put together and published. Uh, I mean, it's much bigger than just figuring out that the mutant doesn't grow ten meters tall. Um, uh, so they went much more work went into that, that which sort of makes it deserving of a paper. But um, yeah, I think that's that's very nice. And also, it was like the the whole tonality of the paper was it it wasn't accusatory in the slightest. It was very sort of um, positive in in also in trying to acknowledge its like reasonings why that uh, why there is a discrepancy between the two re- studies and things like that, um, which I found quite nice. Shall we move to the fun stuff? Yes, let's move to the fun stuff. Ooh. This is where the fun. Und, und, und. Um, oh yeah, you know with the paper how I was like, oh, we should name this Pavlov's, Pavlov's P and then that's actually what the author called it in the preprint anyway. <laughs> I thought I was so original. I was like, ha ha, we should do this. And that's exactly how he named the preprint. So. <laughs> Casey, I stole your idea. I have a fun fact about COVID. <laughs> Something that came up on The Guardian. Um, it might have come up in the Nature Briefing as well. I can't really remember. Um, but the article is called I Feel Fine. Um, fans of world-ending films coping better with the pandemic. It's by Ian um, Sampler, science editor at um, The Guardian. And yeah, it's all in the title. It's basically people who really like watching these end-of-the-world films, including zombie films, alien films, infection films, kind of dystopian um, endings. Those people seem to be kind of better prepared, but also like faring more mentally well. Mm. Um with the apocalypse um yeah that's interesting so it was just um questioning of 310 volunteers on their preferences and then looking at their level of anxiety depression irritability sleeplessness and so on since the pandemic and um horror movie fans were less distressed but the prepper movie types like so where society is collapsing were the most resilient and the best prepared both mentally and practically mm. okay yeah interesting um i feel smug because like i was obsessed with zombies for like this book world war z and i do not mean the movie guys i specifically mean the book yeah, the movie world war terrible. z <laughs> which i would not shut up about for like two years and i drove everybody insane because i mean i went traveling with my with my mom and everywhere we went i was like oh this would be really good for zombies like it's like a, a, like you know beautiful old historical castle i was like mm, it's a castle it's well fortified i think they have a well like it's like got its own source of water and i just i loved it and, and then it annoyed her so i just kept on doing it more and more because she was like <laughs> responding to the stimuli of me annoying her and it's like i mean yeah but yay zombies <laughs> yeah, yay zombies they also um wonder that i think it also it's something that the lab does to you because um you have so much time to think when you're doing a lot of the routine work and i would wonder like what is the best strategy to go for like where to, where to move um move towards the city where the supplies are out of the city where there's less people but um, potentially less supplies and all of these things 
Um, um, Australia obviously wins, like Australia and New Zealand, as you can anyway see from COVID, like being isolated and, and kind of self-sufficient is helpful. Um, and an oil rig is apparently the best place to go if you can get there because they have desalination, they have a ton of food and you're surrounded by water. So it's hard for people to get to you. Yeah. Um, because we all know in the zombie apocalypse, the zombies going to only be the first of our problems. The people are what we really have to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> also, my housemate is playing Last of Us. So she's like running around. It's a um, zombie game. She's running around killing zombies and, and people and dogs. Because again, like when you play a zombie game, you start off killing zombies and you end up just like murdering thousands of people for like reasons, <laughs> Whatever yeah, the reasons. yeah yeah i i played a game that's called daisy um which was like a massive uh on multiple online whatever mmo not really rpg like a shooter but you were sort of like dropped on an island and you had nothing and you had to like scramble for supplies and then for a while like the zombies and the getting supplies were the issue but after a while you had what you needed you you could deal with the zombies and then suddenly the other players were the problem um even to the point and that was psychologically quite interesting that um once i had like sort of figured out my life at one point you sort of think i mean it's a, it's in a game um what do i do next oh i could hunt other players that are not as far as i am um <laughs> and i came yeah, to that conclusion pretty late but, but many others like you realize you run through the island and suddenly like other people sort of hunt you down and you realize it's really it's like human nature that will make it harder um to deal with stressful situations like that in the future um i mean, I mean my hypothet okay hypothetical situations like this but the, the story of this is basically like one somebody kills her friend so the, the main story is ellie and she had this like kind of father figure joel and somebody had killed joel are you spoiling the last of us 2 now I, for everybody <laughs> no everybody knows that this is like in i mean there was also a leak like months before it came out it's, but, then, but like, still like people get really upset about the the, the spoilers of this game like, it's not a spoiler yarn okay it's the, i'm just um, saying the trailer be careful <laughs> So, so somebody has somebody kills her. I, I think it's a trailer. I don't know. Somebody has killed her friend, and in response, she murders literally thousands of people and their dogs in order to like wreak revenge. And I'm like, this is an eye for an eye. Like, this is the exact problem with the eye for an eye mentality. Like, one person kills one person, and now she's going to kill thousands of fairly innocent people in her surroundings just to get to this person who killed her friend. Like, this is. And for my housemate, what I found was really funny. My housemate was completely okay with murdering, like, all of these, like, soldiers. But at one point, she had to start killing dogs as well because the soldiers had trained dogs for sniffing. And that was, like, breaking her up mentally. <laughs> she was like, I don't want to kill the dogs. I'm like, that's the game, hon. Like, <laughs> murder them all. <laughs> Back into the real world. I, again, just, like, on COVID while we're there. Um, two things. One, one quick thing. I think you've all heard that the Brazilian president has now got COVID. So... Apparently, it's him and our glorious leader, um, Boris, who were basically the two who have got... The, the, the two who had the, the least reasonable response um, to COVID as far yeah, as... Yeah, the last one missing country. is Trump, right. Trump, we're coming for you. I mean, yeah, so now that he's got COVID, which is... It's interesting, and his response has basically been the same as what it's been up to now. It's been like, yeah, see, I got sick too. I'm human. It's fine. Let's move on, which is just... I mean, he's sickening. Um but on something a bit more fun, I think uh, there was again in The Guardian a story about, I mean, it's not also not really fun. There was a guy who was in this quarantine hotel, basically. So he was supposed to be quarantining for like two weeks. 
Um, and he just had the last minute idea that he was going to dash to the supermarket. Um, so he broke free of quarantine. He was like basically like climbed out of the, the, the fencing at the back um, and went to the supermarket. The next day, he tested positive for COVID and they had to close that supermarket down. So basically like him being a jerk and like wanting to get, I don't know, I'm assuming chocolate covered biscuits because that's what we all go to the supermarket for these days. <laughs> he has now like, like ruined somebody's livelihood and also threatened people. And this is New Zealand where they basically don't have COVID at the moment because they've been so vigilant with everything and because it's so isolated. Um, so that's like, don't be a jerk. Like, just don't be that jerk person. Like, um, But I like the, the health minister is Chris, Chris Hipkins. And his response said that the man had let down the team of 5 million. Um, and I just, I really like that. Like the idea of like, come on, New Zealand, you're a team, get it together. Like, yeah. this is their mentality in in responding to COVID, but also in the past. So when they had this um, extremist, um, basically, shooter who was, like, Islamophobic and, and the um, Jacinta, what's her name, Jacinta Perdon? Jacinta, Jacinta mm. Arden, sorry. Um, yeah, her response was, like, you're not, this is not what New Zealand is. We're New Zealand and we don't stand for this. <laughs> like, like, they're, like, we're a team. And we're against this kind of shit. We're against things that like hurt our people, especially hurting our weakest people. And I quite like that um, mentality that's going on yeah. there. So it's a jerky thing for this guy to do, but I like the the way of responding as, "Hey, we're a team. Don't don't screw it up for us." Yeah, I have something also f uh, related to Corona. Um, have you heard about the Simpsons paradox? Is it about a donkey? No. Okay. No. <laughs> no. Um, The Simpsons Paradox is a good explanation for something we see in the United States right now, where we have an uh, increase in numbers of positive cases, but a decrease in numbers of deaths. And many people um, either wonder about the validity of the numbers, or they think it's blown out of proportion, like whatever spin they want to give it. Others say... It's because now it's also the young people who are getting it and they're not, not as likely to die or we're getting better at treating it. And all of these things, not all of them, but some of them are true to some uh, respect. But overall, the uh, overlying thing that's, that's happening here is the Simpsons paradox. And that's a statistical fallacy where when you pool the, uh, different data um, sets together and then analyze them as a whole, you get uh, the opposite um, outcome than if you would look at the data sets individually. And um, I link a good video to that um, in, the, in, in the show notes um, where they explain it with, with cats and humans um, to have two very different <laughs> groups. And they say, like, uh, the, if you analyze um, how happy somebody is depending on how much money they have in humans and in cats, uh, the, and you would see that uh, there's a negative trend. Uh, you see the more money they have, the less happy they are. Um, and you do that for humans and for cats. And then you put them both in the same diagram and you realize cats are just more wealthy and happier to start with as a total, as a group. So within the cat group, the trend is negative. So they are less happy the more money they have. But overall, all cats are happier than all humans. And now you put them both in the same diagram and you have sort of two... I'm so confused. Yeah, look at look the video for, for, the, for the graphics for that or just Google Simpsons Paradox. It's coming up quite often, but the idea I is... I just want to put that out there in case anybody else is listening and it's like, wait, why have the cats got money? <laughs> like, I'm there with you. Don't watch um, the video. <laughs> no, but you have two negative trends. Yeah. 
two negative correlations, you put them in the same graph and draw a line through them and suddenly you have a positive correlation. And that's a paradox. And that's what we're seeing right now in the United States. You have all of the county data and state data and you put them all together in one big data set and then you analyze it. And suddenly it looks like the deaths are going down when in fact, if you look by county, um, in many counties, the deaths are going up. Um, but because they are at sort of different stages of the pandemic on the curve, because it's not one single outbreak, it's a lot of small outbreaks, um, they are not comparable. You can't pool them all together and then make uh, draw these conclusions. You have to draw the conclusions from the individual data sets. Um, and I linked a, a Twitter thread about this uh, issue in the United States, the video with the cats and many other better explanations, but it's <laughs> it's short and it's much it's it's very comprehensive. And it has cats. The bottom line is that also in statistical analysis where we think it's 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 number it's it's pure data and pure data means pure truth um is that context matters a lot like when you analyze your data you ha need to know the context especially when you pool data sets together you need to know the context and see if you introduce these sort of um paradox outcomes in there by uh, yeah pooling them together and getting the opposite results from the individual experiments um yeah check the links yeah. And I think it's a very important thing to understand the analysis today. That was actually like a, a theme that came up in my um, conference that I've been at the last few days about this nature-based solutions, like that we have this this habit of collecting data, but we need to look a little bit better at the, the quality of the data and what's underlying that. Because if we're not using the right measurements or if we're not like putting them in their right context, those measurements become meaningless and that's very dangerous and the example they were talking about most commonly was the way that we value nature we basically value nature based on the like financial services we get from nature like ecosystem service and how that makes like directly translates into money and that's not a good enough way of valuing nature there's so much more like there's livelihoods that come from it there's other things that are not just you know directly so yeah it's a very good point i think overall um while we're talking about <laughs> I don't know, bad stats and fake science. I just want to um, make a complaint <laughs> about the snakes. Um, <laughs> I think Yoram's already heard my rant about this. Um, and Yoram got the second rant. So the first rant was with my, my colleague. Um, so Yoram got the watered down version already. But um, in the nature briefing last week, um, and there's a nature video that went up, I think, on the 29th of June. So like at the end of last month. There's a study that shows how flying snakes kind of um, shimmy through the air, was the word used, <laughs> to sort of keep themselves stable while they glide through the air. And I watched that video and I want to say that snake is not flying, it's falling. And it's not even falling gracefully. It's like falling from a tree onto the ground. It's a snake. It can't fly. Um, which, <laughs> it's just like, like badly flopping like bam on the ground. Exactly. Like when I belly flopped into the pool, my parents who... We're a little bit frank, let's be honest. They didn't say, well done, what a beautiful, graceful dive. You flew into that water, Tegan. Or even you dove. They said, <laughs> that was a belly flop. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's already bullshit to call it a flying snake. That's completely wrong. If, if you're flying, you've got to be flapping, man. <laughs> Secondly, it's not even gliding. I mean, even gliding, like... It doesn't have skin flaps. It doesn't like gently move through the air. It flops. Um, but then I sent this to our friend and our friend was like, Tegan, it's a snake. Like, what the f did you expect? 
it is a snake it cannot fly so i just wonder i love the nature briefing it's so interesting and informative all the time it even makes me like three out of ten interested in things about the universe um like astronomy um <laughs> so that's that's a huge effort put in by flora graham who writes it every day um but fake news i'm calling it flying snakes fake news i'm not okay with this <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah um i have something completely different now <laughs> here i've just lodged that as complaint about snakes on our notes <laughs> Excuse me, I have a complaint about your snakes. <laughs> I want to speak to the snakes manager. <laughs> oh yeah, I can Karen it. Like, excuse me, I, I need to speak to management about your snakes. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I have something uh, very different. Um, I have uh, a short tool that I found on Twitter. It's called Jane. Um, actually, I forgot what Where Jane does it stand stands for. for? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Jo journal slash author. Uh, name estimator journal mm -hmm. slash author name estimator um, and it's a handy little tool that has a big database where it correlates uh, the authors of papers to the, the words in the title and the abstracts of the papers and what it means is that if you put in uh, the title of something you've written or the abstract of something you've written and um, click on find authors it will show you all of the authors that are most likely to have written the thing that you submitted and that's useful in uh, when you want to look for reviewers for your work because these are people that are according to this database um, have the highest fit or the highest overlap with topics in of your study and to me that was especially interesting because i am in the last steps of writing my thesis and i soon have to send them out to reviewers and i need to find reviewers for that and so i put in my thesis um abstract in there and it found a lot of people that i knew from the papers that i've cited throughout my thesis so um it works in that respect but um it's something that tegan pointed out when i talked uh, about this earlier to her um it's it has issues right well, it's, I mean, like the problem with any of these things is kind of the general problem with artificial intelligence and this machine learning is that it tends to reinforce the status quo, right? So it's going to find people who have published a lot um, in the in your field, which is like there's some, there's some benefit there. You will find the experts, but at this stage, we also need to go beyond that because we do have a an imbalance and like unequal representation within the scientific field we've talked about this before but currently there's a lot of old white guys in power um and based on not just their brilliance but in fact systematic uh, systemic problems in inequality we have um in science they have gained more power and got more money which allows them to publish more um and get more advantages and if we then use systems where we just look for these people um you then keep the system the same and in fact you reinforce it because of course um it's, it's the same with any algorithm. The more you kind of click on it, um, the more that's seen as a popular option to click on and, and you get this like reinforcement of the status quo. So in this situation, you do need to be looking into a kind of affirmative action like approach where you're also actively going out there and looking for diversity. So this can be in the form of like early career researchers. Um, so gender and um, geographic location, race. And these things can be a bit problematic because of course we can never really 
look at a person's name or even their photo and identify what gender even they are, let alone their, their race or their identity. This is something that we can't do, only people can identify themselves. But we still do need to be trying to make some effort to go beyond just um, having the same, you know, old white guy from the US or North yeah. America um, involved. And that, that is a problem now. Yeah. So I would say that this tool, Jane, is a great start if you have absolutely no idea who to ask. Um, but then I think once you have sort of a map of the community, you can start navigating it in a way with specific goals in mind of increasing diversity, asking people who might not be the top five choice to be asked, but um, maybe a little bit lower uh, on the list uh, for other reasons than their scientific uh, work um, to ask them to review. But overall, I, it's I, it's a tool that's been around for a while and I have never seen it before um, and it worked quite well. So I, was, I wanted to share it here. And speaking of things that I disagree with Yoram that he said on Twitter with, <laughs> he also had a statement about how Excel sucks and it shouldn't be used for science and it's only for making lists or addresses or something. Um, Yoram is wrong. Excel is brilliant. Shut up, Yoram. I <laughs> later I thought about what I, what I wrote there <laughs> and um, I still stand by it that I find Excel extremely dangerous. Um, but mm. Excel to me is the same as if you start like mapping out things on a piece of paper. You would never publish your handwritten notes on a piece of paper and say, um, this is my like this is my scientific study look at it um you would take that to like make up your mind to come up with ideas to figure out things out and then you would use the proper tools to like analyze this um um i don't know i mean and then in, with with excel to me it's the like, same it depends what your measurements are if you have like you know, 20 different scenarios and 65,000 genes, then maybe it's better to start doing things in R. But if you have like, you know, 20 measurements replicated and you just want to do a bar graph, whatever, go with Excel. It shouldn't matter what the quality of the, the drawing is. It should matter the quality of the, the research and the controls and the experimental design used. So, yeah, like, yeah, I agree when I see like an Excel graph and I'm kind of like, eh, but that is a snobbery. And in the end of the day, we should be looking at the science and not design. That that is true. My issue with Excel is not that I find the graphs ugly, which I do, but <laughs> which my, you do. <laughs> my my main issue is that it's very hard to to see what has been done to the data. Um, mm. It's really but hard if, to follow. But if you're not an doing anything to the data, that's fine. If you're like but looking at the data, you have to and do just... at least like uh, some some averages or some like significant uh, analy like analysis, like figuring out if it's significant to the difference that you see. And these things, they can all be done in Excel. And I don't say that they're incorrect, but I find it very hard to follow the process from start to finish. Um, later on, when you open, like when somebody else wants to check what you've, what you've done or yourself, like I've been in a position where I opened an, an analysis that I've done in Excel half a year later, I could not understand what was going on anymore. I had to start <laughs> do it from scratch. Um, I mean, also true, but I've also been in R when I've opened an analysis in R I've done two days ago, and I could not work out how to freaking re-import the data, because <laughs> sometimes R is just buggy. It's not even buggy. It's like, oh, you've put that like with a like hashtag in there, or you've like got it transformed, and I don't like that. And instead of telling you that you just need to transform your data, I'm just going to like make an error, make an error, make an error, make an error. And what we definitely need is sort of a middle ground uh, um, tool that's between these two things. Um, that has some sort of or like I don't even know like a history of the things that you've done 
properly documented, but mm. not being as complex as writing literal code. So um, that's the thing. I would argue that you can do that by just freaking writing down what you're doing as you do it. Like, that's the thing. Like, Excel is a tool, but you're also the one who is registering what you're doing with the tool. When you use a centrifuge, you don't expect the centrifuge to remind you how many RPM and how many minutes. You write down in your lab book, I then centrifuge for this many times. So you can write down in your lab book, I then in column B2 put it. And you know what? In Excel, you can even put that in the column. Like, the top column can be the header, and you can say, this is what I did between, like, B2 equals A2 times 5. Done. Like, yeah. Like, this is an expectations versus reality. And again, you would not expect your microwave to remind you how long to cook your chicken dinner. You have to, like, I don't know, read the packet. <laughs> it is true. I, I agree that Excel has some value. Um, but I, I mean, there have been these studies where the automatic date conversion of Excel uh, messed up large <laughs> scientific data sets because it, would, it was interpreting gene names as dates and yes. things like that. And these are things that, that are it's sometimes very hard to catch them. And, um, or yes. like the whole thing, like Germany uses a different decimal point than uh, the US. So depending on where you get your data from, you might have a point or a comma as a decimal separator. And yeah. this can mess up your analysis again uh, in Excel because Excel not is not always upfront to you that, that it doesn't know that the thing is a number. Um, sometimes it just presents it as a number, but doesn't treat it as a number. And these yeah. are just the things where I see the danger in Excel because th th there are like these little automat automatisms, the slip-ups that can potentially mess up your work without you noticing it. Even if you write down all the steps that you've done, Excel tried to be smart in the background and messed up your work. And that's the thing um, where I see the biggest danger actually in, in Excel. Like, and you can work around all of these things. You can turn off these, you can turn off all of these things. You can things. turn them off and you can also make the same mistakes. I mean, this is also somebody who's not checking their data. And again, if you've got so much data that you can't check it, then maybe, yeah, you shouldn't be using Excel. Like if you can't like scan the data, but you can also make those mistakes in R and even more so because you're then also again, not looking at your data and then you can get something and like, yeah. I mean, you can often use a, a like coding sequence without knowing the steps you should do in order to have the correct input data and you get an output and you can't know, like people don't know because they're, they're not using it properly. Again, it's not a problem with R, it's a, it's a usership problem that um, your output is not a good output. Like this is, yeah, yeah, you can, yeah, anyway. Um <laughs> This is a boring conversation for everybody. Um, I wanted to talk about a horrible person, um, just very briefly. <laughs> Why do you have only positive things today? <laughs> um, I don't know. I thought it was important to talk about this one because, I mean, maybe some of you guys have heard about this already. There's a guy, Pierre Paolo Pandolfi, um, and he was at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Harvard, and he recently moved out of there. And there was discussions about why he moved. Um, and this kind of came in the wake of a Me Too movement and um, revelations that he was sending constant love letters to a postdoc in his lab. So he is a group leader, a professor, an important person. Um, he is married and he started harassing somebody who was working under him that person told him that they were not interested and asked him to keep it professional and he did not he sent them songs he sent them you know love messages um and this is completely inappropriate obviously i mean this 
I I am suspicious to even see the situation where it would be okay to make the first move when there's such a disparity of power. Um, but having been told no to keep doing it is completely not okay. And of course, this this postdoc in the end had to move. And what happened with with Pandolfi is we don't really know. I think he's now suing people who claim that Harvard tried to get rid of him because they, he's suing them for slander because he moved out. And this is, again, a common thing with people who do do, do bad shit. They, they get moved out of the position. They don't get fired. They like, move away. Um, Often upwards in, in Korea. Yeah. Levels. Upwards or sideways. Very rarely downwards, unfortunately. Um, and he then got um, hired by a institute in Italy. And then there was an uproar. <laughs> And the the board of the institute that was hiring him, they all went on strike. They basically did a walk-off because he got hired, um, which is nice. Although apparently the reason they did the walk-off was not because of the fact that he is harassing somebody who works for him, but because they weren't consulted before he was hired. So they did a walk-off because their pride was hurt, not because this man is an abusive asshole, which... Let's let's work on our priorities, people. Like this sucks. Um, apparently, there's also some discussions about whether his papers are legit. So he's also, I think, thirty of his papers are now on pub here. Um, we've been discussed. Um, anyway, you can read about this basically everywhere. I, I, there's like the for a better science. This is this guy, um, Leonard Schneider, who does like a lot of these discussions about research integrity in different ways. Um, so there's a really long article from, from, um, for better science.com. Uh, we'll put the link in the show notes and it goes through kind of all the stuff that's, um, come out in the last, like, um, I don't know, weeks, months. What I wanted to highlight was two statements. The first one is um, from the from him. Um, so his claim is that it wasn't sexual, so it's okay. Um, that he never used offensive or vulgar terms in emails. And if anyone should be angry, it was his wife. So like, and, and then of course, and she understood that I had a moment of weakness. Um, this is disgusting, um, this is inappropriate, and this is, like, you don't have to say offensive or vulgar terms to be misusing your power. And he made the person uncomfortable. They were able to communicate that they were uncomfortable, which in itself is a huge thing, and he ignored their discomfort and kept on going for his own benefit. To then disregard the effect he had on that person and to say that, Nobody should be angry except for his wife. And then to say, oh, but my wife's forgiven me, so therefore the slate is... Like, all of these, like, every single thing in, in here is just so disgusting. Um, yeah, and he's now, yeah, as I said, he's now taking legal act on the people who are claiming that Harvard forced him to leave. So that's the first statement, which just makes me mad. Um, the second statement is something that... Um, it's not a direct quote, it's kind of... Yeah, it's it's from the, the the postdoc who received these attentions. Um, so again, these emails for months, um, and she reminded the professor twice that the attentions were not wanted. And there's the phrase that that is um, she reminded the professor that the intentions gave her um, that his attentions gave her serious embarrassment. And I saw this word embarrassment used a couple of times, like this embarrassment which was caused to the person um, who is like 
being treated badly. And I think that's like a, a big problem. I mean, I'm not denying her experiences. She did feel embarrassed. I believe it, absolutely. But it is absolutely disgusting that he is not expressing his embarrassment. Like, this is something where, like, what is wrong with our culture? That he is not writhing in shame and has, like, gone and locked in. I, I don't know. Um, I get it. We all fall in love. Um, but, like, if you're in a position of power, like, I don't know how to say it. Control your urges, guys. And if you can't, and you do choose to go for it, and that person says no, then you stop immediately. Like, no means no, and even, like, an absence of no, let's go for an enthusiastic yes. Let's really work on that enthusiastic yes consent because this is getting ridiculous. Like, yeah, yeah, full of disgust. Just so full of disgust. Yeah, I'm more and more at a loss for words for when, when these stories come up. Um, it's fairly, fairly often um that's like high like people high up in the in the um sort of in the chain um that they misbehave that there's misconduct be it scientific be it social misconduct be it uh being um yeah what's the word like uh being abusive um all of these things they come to light now and it's good that they come to light more and more but you know that there's so many cases that don't And yeah, I <laughs> I don't know anymore how to react to these. I was looking at something on Facebook the other day and I was clicking through a, a science site um, and they were showing on the science site, they had a photograph of like a diet that was claiming to help fight COVID. So it's like if you use a... Um, acidic diet I think if you have more like lemons and stuff you're less likely to get COVID and obviously this is bullshit guys um, yeah. but you can't change the pH of your body by through the things that you eat you have stuff in your <laughs> blood that makes very sure that your pH stays very stable otherwise you have big problems <laughs> acidic diets or basic diets they don't change the pH of your body and anyway okay even if they did like It's COVID. <laughs> that's not a, that's not a enough reason why. Anyway, if you read it on a notice board or on Facebook, it's not it's not geared for COVID. But what was interesting? So this is this is a site which was talking about how it was bullshit. They had like the they originally put the, the picture up of this diet, and then they had on it saying this is like an example of something that's fake. Just beware. And then some people in the comments were already saying, hey, even though you're saying in the in the uh, what's it called? The caption, this is fake, please also put a watermark on top of the photo because if you don't put a watermark saying it's fake, people might share it. But by the time I got to the site, which was two days ago, um, a, a box was in front of this picture that was generated by Facebook itself. And have you seen this yet? No. So I, I can tell you that the box comes up and it says conclusion false as the heading and a little light bulb. The primary claims in the information are factually inaccurate. And then it has a link to fact-checked. Um, so it says, false, there is no cure or vaccine for COVID-19 and no proof this diet works. And then you can click to show what, what um, Facebook is doing. So it looks like Facebook has implemented something now where they're tagging stuff that is easily recognizable as fake news about COVID. And they're trying to um, show, like block this information and show that this is dangerous. And then they, they tell you how they've checked it. So they're like, we have, you know, independent scientists, blah, mm. blah, blah, blah. Um, so that was quite interesting. I haven't seen this before. Um, and 
Yeah, I'm like, too too rarely on Facebook to have noticed that. But yeah, I've I've seen it on other social media that there is now banners and highlighted information, even on YouTube. Whenever you watch something that's like remotely dealing um, with COVID, um, there is like a little highlight thing. Even on stuff like NCBI, like if people want to go to NCBI, like this big database of published mostly medical research, but also other research. Um, there's a big banner that tells you um, be be careful. Like here's the sort of curated information about COVID um, for all these people who want to do their own research um, and then misunderstand the information that's published in papers. Even if the papers are are like good papers, um, uh. if you're untrained, you can take the wrong conclusions from these. Um, and so even there, NCBI has like big disclaimers now, um, warning to make like. To, to get a f the the wrong idea about COVID. Yeah, and um, yeah, that's something I saw. There's there's a study about um comorbidities for COVID, and there's like smoking doesn't have a negative impact. In fact, there's like a positive but non-significant influence of smoking on co COVID. And then somebody like had interpreted that as smoking protective, and it's like no, if it's not significant, there's no influence. Like it doesn't matter if it's positive or negative. If it's not significant, you can't claim that there is a change at this stage. Like you need yeah. to do more testing to get like significance. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a final thing on COVID. Um, I don't know if you guys are paying attention, but the there was about 230, I think, scientists petitioned um, the World Health Organization, and they've now updated to say that COVID can potentially be airborne, and we need to be aware of this. So previously, we had this idea that it was only in droplets, and they're saying, look, this is, this is mostly the case still. Like, like the majority is still transmitted by coughing, sneezing, touching, like close proximity. So you should absolutely keep wearing a mask, keep washing your hands, physically distance. But there is some potential for um, very small particles to build up in like enclosed, poorly aerated spaces. And this has implications for if we want to start going back to the cinema, going back to work, going to the pub, going to like closed, poorly ventilated spaces. There can be an increased risk because people are constantly breathing and, and these tiny um, particles can like kind of build up in concentration in that space without getting like moved out into the world so yeah, that was something that happened aerosols, on tuesday these these yeah. aerosol idea right and um, some people suggest that moving activities outdoors can already help greatly help um, to reduce the risk of infection like mm -hmm. sitting two meters apart on a on a bench outside um, is much safer than sitting two meters apart on benches inside uh -huh. um, if you have dinner or, or something. Um, so the, I think, yeah, the current thing that is discussed, it's, it's still a minor thing. Again, it's more likely to be this like more like contact-based or close proximity coughing, sneezing. So, I mean, the argument is it doesn't mean that you should stop social distancing because you're anyway going to catch it from aerosols that is absolutely not the take home here the take home is like maybe consider not going indoors to the theater even if you are wearing a mask mm. um just like try to try to keep on staying as far away from people as you can yeah meet, meet outside if you have to meet people try to meet outside things like that um which also means that like office situations where you sit in in a rather small office for eight hours a day with other people um can be potentially more risky than i don't know outdoor work or um yeah not being in the office and doing remote work and um just remember, people are gross. <laughs> Stay away from people. They're gross.
I have something plant science-y, uh, and I think it's uh, I I have two things, but I, because this is already quite long today, I think I only do the one thing. Um, have you heard about assisted migration in trees? Maybe that's something that could have co even come up in your conference. It's controversial, Yarm. It's controversial. Yeah, yeah. And I found an article on um, The Guardian about this. Uh, I found it quite interesting because it gives a good um, general overview about the idea. So assisted migration in trees means um, that due to the climate crisis, some trees, um, their habitats will be lost. They won't be able to survive in 10, 20, 30 years time in this area because the temperatures will rise or the area will become too arid or... Other things like the environment will change very rapidly in the near future, and the trees Sorry. take a long time to adapt to things like that. No, I have a little edit here. This is already happening in many species. Yeah, there's a poleward movement. There's there's species moving towards cooler climates because we are screwing up the earth. It's not something that's going to happen in the future. It's already happening yeah. that these species are moving. It's a very important point. Yes, thank you. Um, it's already Sorry. happening, um, and. Usually when trees move to new habitats, it works through the dispersion of their seeds. Um, and so it's a fairly slow process, as, as you can imagine. It means that um, the seeds get transported to a new environment where then it sprouts and has to grow into a tree that makes seeds again that can then be transferred. And, and that can be very slow in trees. And that might be yeah. too slow for the ongoing climate crisis. And so some um, conservationists suge suggest that we as humans, we help the trees by actively planting them in new areas where um, the conditions might be more favorable to them so that the populations don't die out. They are just shifted elsewhere. But the downside of that is um, they're bringing the trees into areas where they were not before. Um, so they're introducing non-native species to new environments. Um, and and where other things already exist. Yeah. Like where there's already an ecosystem operating there, yeah. which might not, not want those trees in them. And you might do more damage than good by destroying uh, like a, a functioning ecosystem by saving one species of trees and, and moving it into this ecosystem. This is the, the concern that people have. Um, and yeah, the, the article gives a good overview on, on that um, and some good reasons in favor and against assisted migration. Um, there's one thing that people often criticize. It's like um, it's, it means that humans are playing God when they're moving the trees. Um, and <laughs> I think I think we've already done that, guys. I think yeah. like I mean, at least we've played like let's say the devil. I mean, we've already foobarred things really, really badly. So like, I mean, there's the argument given that we've already screwed up so bad. Yeah. Should we play God to fix it, or should we just like try to keep it as bad as it currently is and hope it doesn't get worse? Like, what's also, the playing worst? God to me is such a such a weird argument because. Like, what is playing God? If if I, like, transform a piece of land into an acre and put weed on there, is that playing God because weed wasn't growing there before? If I think it's I, okay because that's if, actually what God told us to do in the Bible. Like, okay. God said, go and work the land. And if not I... Not me, you, because you're a man. If like, I... <laughs> <laughs> Pain in childbirth is what I've got coming for So anyway, me. so this argument to me holds holds little value, but there's many other good reasons, especially the ecosystem um, impact. That is something that you need to to consider, and it's not something mm. you can. There's no one answer to this. There's maybe some tree species 
that where you can help them migrate and find places where their impact on the ecosystem is negligible and there's other species where it doesn't work at all so you can't say assisted at least in my opinion that assisted migration um, is always terrible or always a solution but it just means we have to be very careful about what we do so that we don't make things worse in the process of trying to rescue some species I mean, the nice thing here is that, like, there is a really simple answer. Like, I mean, it's it's a very complicated question of like, should we be moving the trees and should we not? And that that in itself is like unbearably complicated, and we can never know the right response. And no matter what we do, we'll never know if we did the right thing. Um, but you know, we can just like cut our fossil fuel emissions and try to keep this global climate change thing under control. Like, that's the solution. We know the solution. Let's just get on that. Like, yes. We know the solution. Let's stop screwing things up so badly. <laughs> Let's try to like. Then we have to move trees around, in, trying to to protect them from dying. Yep. I mean, otherwise we're going to be playing tree chess, and it's not just the trees. You've got the beavers who live in the trees, and then there's like the fleas on the beavers, and there's like the I don't know, like yeah, but yeah, but yeah, it's it's like the pollinators. It's the um the animals that feed on the trees that then get fe- uh, other e- uh, animals eat those animals again. It's it's yeah, you have to move entire ecosystems. And we don't understand the ecosystems, how they work now. We have no idea how they currently work. We just do not know that detail. And to try to imagine how they will work in a constantly shifting world that is shifting at a rate that's faster than anything that we've ever seen before. Like, we just cannot understand this. So, like, there's no, like, we're just, like, stumbling blindly into the future. Um yeah (laughs) that's basically all i can say like yeah 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 um we should get at the root of this problem and not try to fix some of you probably know i work i work in climate change now so it's kind of like a (laughs) something where i'm like ah just like screaming into the void Ah!" (laughs) you start working at nine you start screaming until it's five and you stop (laughs) screaming it's like another day done I mean, the, the sad reality is a lot of stuff is. I mean, a lot of the the research you see in climate change, it's it's not it's not good news. It's it's stuff of like, oh, we did this, and look, this is yeah, fuba. Yeah. Okay, my not a cat cat fact is this thing from the BBC News that dinosaur ancestors may have been tiny, and I think most of us who have any kind of thoughts about this like evolutionary concept is it's not super surprising, um, but it's just this idea that we often think of really big dinosaurs but also there's really small dinosaurs and probably the early dinosaurs were really really small and they have a fossil that they found in madagascar it's from 237 million years ago the dinosaur and it was just like 10 centimeters tall so there's a little drawing of this guy Mm. as well and i kind of like to imagine that as like the it's very cute the cat of the day like it's quite yeah (laughs) It's quite cute. Um, you know all of those terrible children's books you had where they had cavemen alongside dinosaurs and it was like very scientifically inaccurate um, that humans were around at the same time as these dinosaurs. But if they were, I'm just saying if they were, <laughs> this could be the guy that you had. Uh, and also I think if they were, um, then humans would have had pet dinosaurs just like how, Absolutely. how they have pet cats right now. <laughs> Which brings us to the cat fact. Cat fact. And um, we've seen now virtual conferences and virtual meetings and yeah. um, 
working from home and now there's a big oh London Cats worldwide show coming up. <laughs> Um, which is a big cat show in London. And unfortunately, Tegan, you can't go in there in person this year. But you and anybody who is interested can buy an online pass and just do the whole thing virtually, remotely, over internet, over video chat. Um, you can interact with the cats <laughs> and the breeders, apparently. You can... Um, yeah, and that's pretty much already the entire story. They came up with a concept to have a cat show online um tickets are 10 pounds um <laughs> and you can just see fancy yeah, purebred cats a cat. go buy a cat <laughs> like rescue some cat yeah no you should definitely buy like a four thousand pound purebred cat after you watched it uh, on the on the show here my my friend has a rag doll which like has no respect for her working regime. Like whenever she goes to get a coffee, it just comes and sits on her computer, like usually on her keyboard. And today it somehow managed to get a sticky note stuck to itself. Like it just like barged into her way. And it just like, was like a cat lying. And then the cat like has a sticky note on it. And it's also angry about the sticky note. Like she didn't put it there. It's like mad because it's a stuck. So um, what I'm saying is I already choose my, my friends based on their ability to send me cat content. Um, so I don't know that I need to pay for it in this in the situation yeah. but i i also i i won't um I, I just thought it's nice that we're all doing the thing now over video now we can also do catch outs i mean should i tell my boss that i need to take half a day off work because i need to watch i need to go to the catch no, you should you should ask if you can re get it reimbursed reimbursed through work 12 oh it's on saturday that's a shame yeah i i don't really think um it's worth it What's definitely yeah. worth it is if you guys go and check out plantsandpipettes.com <laughs> where we publish um, a couple of Segway. articles per week, <laughs> like two usually, uh, about plant science. Um, we yeah, so this week what have we got? We've got something about um, polyploidism, so how plants kind of uh, end up being hybrids and having extra genomes, one from like one species and one from the other species and the complications that brings. Yeah, with, and then with the best cartoon I've ever drawn, I peeked there. Um, and it's, yeah. it's actually quite terrible. Guess guess what? Yoram <laughs> used as a pun for genes. That's right, genes, genes <laughs> as genes as genes. It's never been done before. Uh, and then the second um, post is the one that we talked about today on the podcast. So if you want to read a bit more detail about that, then you can yeah. go and check out www.plantsandpipettes.com. You can also reach out to us over social media. Tell us how we're wrong, how we're right. <laughs> <laughs> what your thoughts are on the things that we said um you can find me on twitter at plants pipettes yeah, on on instagram and facebook it's usually me you're interacting with and that's at plants and pipettes and um yeah if you have any questions if you have any input we're always happy to hear that um you can rate us wherever you find um a way to rate this podcast mostly on itunes but also like any other platform is appreciated tell your friends and about it's us like if this literally two-hour-long podcast episode hasn't been enough of our charming dulcet tones, you can also hear us talking about Stefano Mancuso's The Something Genius of Something Plants, um, The mm -hmm. Revolutionary Genius of Plants, um, which we do with Ellen Earhart. So you can um, look for The Plant Book Club in Apple Podcasts. Apple. 
yeah. podcasts? Apple Podcasts. I said it right. Um, Good. And <laughs> therefore also in most other podcatchers, you'll you'll find The Plant Book Club. Um, the next book that we're reading there, uh, if you want to read along, is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And uh, I only re read like 50, 60 pages of it so far, and I really, really enjoy it. So even... <laughs> If you don't listen to the podcast, which you absolutely you should listen to it, but even if you don't read this book, so far I'm really enjoying it and um, it gets a very early thumbs up from me. Guys, I've known Yoram for like eight years now and that's the first time I've ever heard him say he really enjoys something. <laughs> that's not true. Uh, I enjoy no, complaining I a lot and I say it loud. <laughs> Yeah, I bet you. I will bet you that by when is it next month? You'll have some complaints at least. We'll see. So we'll far, see. I I can't say uh, I, I I didn't find anything that triggered my complaints reaction. Anyway, um, with that, <laughs> thank you for listening. Opening and closing music is as always "Caravana" by Philip Gross. See you next week. Bye. Bye.